You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. In the Oakview proposal, they ask for a forgiveness on the sales taxes associated with construction, which will likely save them several hundred millions of dollars. Those sales tax revenues, that funds things like uh, our health and human services programs at the city. It funds things like our public transportation issues at the county. So though they may not require a direct public subsidy by not paying that sales tax, it does have a downstream impact on uh, the kinds of services that we can provide as a city and a county. That's today's guest, Seattle City Council Member Rob Johnson, discussing how a proposal to renovate Seattle's key arena can affect you and life in this city. I'm Jeff Schulman, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, and today's special episode of Seattle Growth Podcast focuses on the future of Key Arena. This question has become more relevant as multiple groups are hoping to bring professional basketball and hockey back to Seattle. Key Arena played home to the basketball franchise Seattle Supersonics up until 2008 when the team moved to Oklahoma City. In its current state, the arena is reported to not meet the expectations of the NBA or the NHL. But there are three proposals being considered by city council. One group, led by Chris Hansen, is proposing to develop a sports and entertainment complex in the Soto neighborhood. Two others have proposed to renovate Key Arena. The issue at hand is now twofold. Which proposal will the city support for the purpose of attracting professional basketball and hockey back to Seattle? And secondly, if Key Arena is not chosen for that purpose, what will the city do with this public asset? In this episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, City Council Member Rob Johnson describes the process by which the proposals will be evaluated, and he offers insights into the pros and cons of each. Developer Sam Ferrazano offers an alternative vision for repurposing Key Arena should a development in Soto become the home of professional arena sports. Create kind of a um, an arts enclave in the spirit of like a Pike Place Market. Imagine Key Arena as meet the artists, the local artists, and come there and experience it in the place that it's made. It could be huge for the city and the, the region at that point. For context, the second season of Seattle Growth Podcast examined how a return of the Sonics would affect both basketball fans and non-basketball fans alike. In the season, Chris Hansen, Wally Walker, and Pete Nordstrom described why they have joined together in an effort to build a sports and entertainment complex in Seattle's Soto neighborhood. Wally Walker summarized the proposal. What we propose to do is privately finance, in other words, no public money whatsoever, this arena, the seven acres that's required to build a world-class arena, is bisected by a, a block, really an alley, of Occidental Avenue. To have enough room to build an arena, we need, really, it's just that strip of asphalt to be vacated. Uh, if the council approves that, then we can put a shovel in the ground the next day. Meanwhile, two groups have responded to the Office of Economic Development's request for proposals to renovate Key Arena. AEG, which has formed Seattle Partners with Hudson Pacific Properties, and Oakview Group. Lance Lopes of Oakview Group shared what he hopes to accomplish with the renovation. Our vision for that is that it is a world-class sports entertainment venue. Uh, that's a 30-year-plus solution for the city of Seattle. Leading the key arena process is the director of the Office of Economic Development, Brian Surratt, who described the unique opportunity Seattle's rapid growth has presented. Well, I think you know, Seattle, we're in a really unique position where 
um, you know, I think it's been really clear from the public standpoint. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of interest in actual public dollars going to projects like like this. And um, we are a market and a region that, again, blessed with um, amazing assets that private money and private investment wants to come into. And so we should take advantage of that. To get better clarity on the proposals and the process by which city council will decide among them, join me as I sit down with city council member Rob Johnson. I am here at City Hall with City Councilmember Rob Johnson. Rob, thank you for joining me yet again on Seattle Growth Podcast. Thanks. We're here to talk about what's called Key Arena and the redevelopment there and potential arenas here in Seattle. Can you talk broadly speaking about what Seattle Center means to the city as a whole or should mean to the city? You know, few cities are fortunate enough to have a, a, a real community gathering place like Seattle Center. Um you know, the uh, most recent unfortunate, untimely passing of Chris Cornell is a great example where, you know, it's automatically a natural assumption that something is going to happen at Seattle Center in order to honor him and, the, and his impact on the city. So you can see naturally the Seattle Center being a place where folks go to not just to mourn, but also to celebrate. It's a place where we have our, uh, our Festal programs, which celebrates a lot of different international community relationships that we have. In addition, we've got this wonderful thriving arts community at Seattle Center um, with the ballet and the rep and the children's theater and a whole host of other, other folks up there. So it's really uh, coming into its own in a very fun and interesting way. And so it's a wonderful time for us to be having a conversation about the redevelopment of the key and how that fits into the continued exciting initiatives happening at Seattle Center. And so not talking specifics about the proposals on the table, but just broadly speaking, the future of Key Arena and what you would like it to mean to Seattle Center or to the city as a whole, what are some of the things you want that to accomplish? You know, I grew up going to events at Key Arena um, and to its neighbor to the south of Mercer Arena, too. Um, We are working really hard right now with the opera on redevelopment of Mercer Arena to allow them to use that for staging space and um, costume shops and all kinds of really interesting things. Um, And, you know, we we all as a city bought into the idea that the NBA said we needed to renovate Key Arena in order to keep the Sonics in town. And we went through that whole process in the 90s. And I was a kid going to games at the Tacoma Dome during that renovation and um, was really excited to come back to, and see the new key in action. And it was really unfortunate to, shortly a decade after to really watch us uh, be told that that wasn't enough. So now we're in a position again where folks are asking us as a city to step up and take some leadership and uh, find uh, a home for what could be a future Sonics uh, rebirth here in the city. Um, Key Arena seems like a really good place for us to be discussing it, particularly in the light of uh, last year's unsuccessful vote for the uh, alley vacation in Soto. Um, But I still very much think that both options are on the table. Regardless of whether or not we bring basketball back uh, at a uh, professional level with the Sonics, we still have some really wonderful tenants up there. The Storm games are really fun and very family-friendly. Um, the you know uh, the Red Hawks of Seattle University are playing there. We still have a healthy number of concerts. And we've proven that the operating model is now um, uh, much more successful than it was in, in the past. So... Um, we need to be cognizant of all those issues and those current tenants as we look to uh, what a potential redesign of Key Arena would mean. In general, 
the fact that we have these two proposals, what's to love about them both? Great, great question. So, you know, when I've been thinking about how do we analyze the proposals, I've been really focused on a couple of things. You know, one is what is the financial impact to the city? You know, um, we have conscientiously been very focused on um, both with the Soto proposal and with this proposal or these proposals, as well as other uh, public-private partnerships, that we want to make sure that we're not uh, privatizing the profit and publicizing the risk. Um, that's what we've seen too many times in the past with other major capital infrastructural projects that have uh, been driven by the private sector, but also had public sector participation financially. So I want to make sure that we're getting a good deal for us from a financial perspective. I'm also really cognizant of the same transportation challenges that uh, have been plagued, uh, plaguing the South Lake Union uptown neighborhood for a really long time. So really focused on how do we get folks in and out of that facility on a day-to-day -day basis, let alone on days when we might have a major event up at Key Arena. Because Seattle Center is such a jewel for us as a city that we should be focused on access 24-7, 365, not just on the days that we might have a major event there. And then the third issue for us is, you know, what does this really mean for the city in terms of the long-term vision of Seattle Center itself? Um, there's been a lot of discussions about what uh, what the next phase of development Seattle Center would be. We're obviously um, right now um, studying a lot of zoning uh, changes throughout the city. The Lower Queen Anne Uptown neighborhood is um, in the mix of uh, discussions for higher buildings this year. Um, that's going to have an impact on the number of folks that are going to be using the center on a daily basis. And so these are all things that, as a planner, I spend time thinking about um, because all of these issues are interrelated. And then so OVG, let's start with that one. Um, what's to like and what's uh, some things that you'd either like to see changed or you'll live with, but they're, they're not on your love list. Yeah. You know, um, when I look at their proposal, I think the Oakview proposal is a really interesting one because of the, some of the community partnerships that they, ha they bring to the table um, and clearly some of the outreach that they've had in community. Um, I also think that they uh, rightfully so made a pretty big splash in the transportation community with that parking garage piece. Um, I made it clear to them that uh, I fundamentally believe that we've got a lot of parking in the neighborhood with both public and private garages and that the construction of a 850 or 900 style parking garage wasn't necessarily the highest priority for me. And I think it'd be better for us to have um, better parking management in the neighborhood as opposed to that garage. Um, I think that they're going to come back around and, and remove that parking garage from their proposal, um, or I would be very surprised if they didn't. Um, and, and then generally, I think that they, they clearly have a, a strong model that has a lot of financial support. Um, so, you know, when I look at these two proposals, you know, I think that uh, the financial elements are the, are the pieces that are the hardest to unravel because they both require some level of public subsidies. Um, and the Oakview proposal is, um, is the one that I think is going to require us to make sure that we're really running through it with a fine-tooth comb to make sure that the things that they're asking for are the kinds of things that we can actually do as a city, whether it's forgiveness of the... Um, sales tax on construction or whether it's a um, redirection of the B&O taxes in the neighborhood back to the uh, the business or 
or whether um, it's the sort of rental agreement that they've got um, and the return on that rental agreement. So I think those financial pieces on the Oakview proposal are the, par- are the pieces that I'm going to want us to really take the strongest and hardest look at. As you currently understand them, what would those public subsidies mean to the average Seattle citizen? You know, I think both of the proposers would say that um, their proposal doesn't come with a real cost to the taxpayer. And I think that that's fair from their point of view. But from uh, the point of view as someone who's uh, uh, in charge of the fiscal governance of the city, one of nine people in charge of fiscal governance for the city, I think it's really incumbent upon us to have an honest conversation about those assumptions. And so to give you one, uh, one data point, in the Oakview proposal, they ask for a forgiveness on the sales taxes associated with construction, which will likely save them several hundred millions of dollars. Um, those sales tax revenues go to the state, and then the state redistributes a portion of those back to the city. That funds things like uh, our health and human services programs at the city. It funds things like our public transportation issues at the county. So though they may not require a direct public subsidy by not paying that sales tax, it does have a downstream impact on uh, the kinds of services that we can provide as a city and a county. So those are the issues that I want us to dig in uh, more closely on and have a more uh, complete conversation with the public about the trade-offs. And there's another group trying to put a half a billion dollars into our community, but in the Soto neighborhood. Does the Soto Arena group also ask for those subsidies that you just discussed? In some ways, they have in the past. they had asked for access to lower interest uh, financing that the city can get through our um, bonding authority. Um, they have since submitted a letter to us saying that they are not going to be asking for those terms. The memorandum of understanding that we've got with the uh, Soto folks expires here at the end of this year, at the end of 2017. So my expectation is that that uh, puts us in a position where if we were going to continue down a pathway with Soto where we would uh, renegotiate a new MOU that presumably would take that um, that element out. But right now, from a legal perspective, we are bound to the terms of that MOU, and that MOU does presume access to um, city debt financing, uh, bond financing, um, which would be repaid by the uh, Soto folks. Much in the same way that AEG assumes that too. AEG's proposal for Key Arena assumes, again, access to city bonding capacity. Um, city can bond at a lower rate because we're a city than you can get oftentimes on the private marketplace. And so AEG asks us to do that uh, on their proposal at Key Arena too. Let's talk Seattle Partners. Uh, what's to love about their proposal and what's uh, to either dig into or to not love? You know, when I look at their proposal from an urban design perspective, it's, um, it's um, I think, a slightly better proposal. Um, the way that it meets the street um, and the way that they've got it designed to meet the street, I think, um, results in uh, a better interaction with the public than what I've seen from the Oakview Group proposal. Um, I also have liked their uh, transportation investment strategies. I think that the proposals that they've got around um, access to public transit um, uh, in particular have been really compelling. Um, You know, I think that there are, uh, again, from my perspective, the biggest details here are really going to be about the financials. And the biggest piece of their financial assumptions are, again, that access to city bonding authority. There's some other issues that, that I think we need to have worked out there, too. You know, one of their 
one of their uh, financial proposals is to basically pay the city the difference in our um, debt refinancing if we don't raise enough revenue through taxes in order to meet that payment. So let's say that that payment is five million bucks a year. If our tax revenue is three and a half million, they'd pay us the difference between three and a half million and 1.5. But one of the terms of their agreement is that if we ever are raising more money than uh, that $5 million, let's say one year we have a really great year and we raise seven million bucks, we would credit them back uh, the 1.5 million that they paid us for the bad year. So those kinds of issues are the kinds of issues that we really need to tease out as part of the public discussion um, whenever we get a final proposal from the mayor with a final uh, selected RFP uh, respondent. And so walk us through how the three proposals, how one will be chosen. Um, is it an elimination tournament? So we're first going to get uh, a key arena best proposal and then compare that to Soto, or is there some other way this all happens? That's a great question. Um, you know, the Soto process uh, is much further along. The um, conversations that we were having with the Soto folks early on in the decade have them in a position where uh, they don't just have plans, but for all intents and purposes, without the uh, alley vacation vote, they're shovel ready. They've already done all of their environmental work. They've already done all their transportation impact analysis. They've already done their strong architectural designs and their engineering scope uh, issues. So um, they're much further along in the process than the key arena proposal. And so what they are doing is they're going back through the alley vacation process here at the city and reapplying and getting back in the queue to have the question brought back before the council again um, with uh, obviously the same architectural renderings and the same uh, drawings and the same proposal. The Key Arena RFP process has these two proposers, Oakview and AEG, submitting proposals, which they have, the mayor selecting a proposal uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, submitting that final proposal uh, to the council, the council would then uh, enter into an, our own analysis, and if we come to the conclusion that that, um, that bidder for Kirina um, meets with all the terms and conditions that satisfy us, we would then enter into a term sheet agreement uh, or MOU, much in the same way that we did with the folks in Soto. Now, uh, uh, the AEG proposal, for example, is very explicit that if we were to enter into an, an MOU or a term sheet agreement with, uh, with AEG, that they would require us to not vacate the alley in Soto, that we would effectively be only choosing them and they, we would be prohibiting ourselves from allowing a Soto arena to get constructed. Um, I'm not sure that the Oakview proposal is that specific um, on that term. But uh, if we were to then sign a, an MOU or a term sheet with someone at Key Arena, they would then have to go back and do all the work that the Soto Arena has done. They'd have to go back through and do their full engineering feasibility. They'd have to do their transportation environmental impact statement, uh, transportation analysis, all those things that the Soto Arena has already done. And then they'd come back to the city for final approval on that project and their construction agreement um, and their plans for construction. So even if we were to sign on the dotted line with a key arena proposal um, before the end of the year, we're still several years away from actually being ready to have the building start construction. Whereas if we were to sign on the dotted line with Soto 
um, before the end of the year, they could start construction immediately after we sign on the dotted line. The confusion on your face is uh, amazing right now. There's too many things that I would love to ask you. It is not an apples to apples comparison by any stretch of the imagination right now. And I think that that's what's so confusing to a lot of folks is that we do have a proposal that is further along in the process in Soto than what we have at Key Arena. Not to say that there's a preference to one or the other. They're just not at the same, uh, they're, they're not playing at the same playing field right now. And so which is going to come first, a decision on the street vacation out of the, out of the council or a decision on Key Arena? I would expect us to um, try to have a conversation about both of these topics concurrently. I don't know if we will. I am not the chair uh, or one of the co-chairs, rather, of the committee of the whole that will discuss these options. That's our council president, Bruce Harrell, and council member Deborah Juarez, who chairs the Park Seattle Center and Library Committee. Um, I would expect them to want us to have both of those discussions sometime this summer and into the early fall. But uh, I'll remind your listeners that the last time we had a proposal coming from a mayor, it was in the Soto uh, Arena project in, in the early part of this decade. The council, rightly so, spent a lot of time and energy hiring our own uh, uh, lawyers, hiring our own financial experts, and really going through that proposal in a lot of detail to make sure that we were dotting our I's and crossing our T's. I would hope we would take the same approach on the key arena proposal, not just take what is handed to us by the mayor, but also give it the same rigorous analysis to make sure that we're getting the best deal possible for the taxpayers. And then from a, a basketball fan's perspective, how does the key arena, how does the three groups involved, a different group trying to bring the team, then construct the arena and on public land, what does that mean for that process? You know, um, I get um, I get more flack about this topic at the Thanksgiving dinner table than just about anything else. My little brother played basketball at the U for a couple of years, and I've got a couple of cousins that played overseas. And so I get uh, harangued a lot from my family and friends about what we're doing to bring um, the Sonics back to Seattle. From my perspective, uh, uh, you know, the the process by which we bring the Sonics back starts with us making a final determination about a, a, a stadium, uh, uh, whether that's in Key Arena or, or whether that's in Soto, um, I think is anybody's guess. If I were to guess, um, when we choose an arena site, the most likely uh, professional sports team to locate in Seattle first would be an NHL team. And then several years afterwards, we would uh, uh, hopefully see an expansion conversation in the NBA that would include Seattle as a first destination. I still think that even in a best case scenario, we are six to 10 years away from having a basketball team, uh, men's basketball team back in Seattle. And that's assuming a pretty rosy scenario um, on the on either of these sites actually getting under construction, actually getting built, and then likely um, proving that they are viable financially and then bringing a team back. I look at the kind of work that has happened in Vegas and Kansas City and other places, and I think that there um, there have been times when a new arena has been successful at getting interest in a professional team to move to that city, and there are times when there haven't been. So it's really difficult to predict the future. What can you do now as a city council member in this process to make sure that we don't end up in the same situation that the city was in when the team left? You know, we're, 
as a city in, in the position now where we need to make sure that any decision that we make on either a Soto Arena or on a Key Arena redevelopment has the city's best interest at heart. And I am really wanting to be careful that um, we are not uh, investing city resources into something that's going to result in a huge um, liability for us financially as a city moving forward. Um, I think it's been proven time and time again that billionaires who want to own teams can't afford stadiums. And we need to make sure that we are asking those billionaires to pay their fair share for those stadiums and that we are the ones left footing the bill. I'll go back to that earlier statement. The concerns that I've watched with other stadiums is the um, private sector pocketing all the profits off of the teams and events that are happening at the stadiums and asking the public sector to take all the risk on all the construction side and all the, the losses that may happen in the down years. That financial model has proven to, uh, to put other local governments in a position where they're having to choose between important social services and human services spending and keeping uh, public stadiums afloat. I don't want us to be in that circumstance, and that's why I'm going to fight to make sure that we have really rigorous financial analysis of all of these proposals moving forward. And the city requested proposals that required no public subsidy, and it could house hockey and basketball. And two groups came back and filled one out of the two. Is there any talk of putting out the proposal where maybe we could see what Key Arena could do beyond sports? Yeah, great question. You know, I had floated the idea early on in this process that we effectively ask either of these sites, whether it's Soto or Key Arena, to go through a process and then effectively not be allowed to get their final construction permits until we've seen a deal in hand with an NBA franchise come into the city. And at that point, you would get to flip the switch and start uh, start constructing the facility. That was not met with welcome response by my colleagues. Um, and uh, and what we've sort of come around to is this concept of um, uh, what would be the best financially viable option for us as a city. And so if Soto was chosen uh, as the place for when the NBA comes knocking, and now we have uh, you know, 300,000 square feet of space in Seattle Center uh, at city property that we need to decide what to do, is there any talk of opening up uh, proposals instead of just as a concert and a sports venue like it currently is, maybe make it for the arts, make it affordable housing or some other, just open it up for the creative people of Seattle to make some proposals? Yeah, you know, I think that that would absolutely be part of the consideration as we think about the future of Seattle Center and we embark on another vision for what the center is going to look like over the next 20 years. If we were in your hypothetical scenario to choose Soto, I think we would still be very interested in what a f uh, future uh, renovated key arena looks like because we still have long-term maintenance needs there. We still have a facility that needs uh, a lot of TLC and a lot of upkeep. But we also have some really great anchor tenants there now between the Storm and Seattle U and, and um, several other folks. And so I, I'm really hopeful that we, um, we wouldn't lose sight of that future vision um, if we ended up choosing a different site. But um, that, that's a conversation that will likely come to fruition in 2018 or 2019 after we've gotten through all of this current RFP proposal process and, and the reconsideration of the Alley Vacation in Soto. Does the 
new lease agreement that's uh, going to be floated to uh, city council soon uh, with the Seattle storm. Does that affect this process in some way? Nope. In no way, shape or form. I think the storm has been a really great tenant up there. They've got um, some clauses in there that are really important for them in terms of uh, guaranteeing them space here at Key Arena, but also guaranteeing them relocation if another arena is built. So um, this doesn't change from my perspective, anything associated with Key Arena. And in fact, um, gives us certainty that we're going to continue to have the storm in town, which is really important to me. Any concluding thoughts? You know, I would say that the uh, thing I've most appreciated about the conversation this time around is a lot of the difference in tenor and tone from sports fans, uh, as opposed to the last time around. I think you and a whole lot of other folks in the media have done a really great job of refocusing the energy on uh, a positive uh, message that bringing back the Sonics uh, to the city is a really important thing for us. Um, and that is a marked contrast from a lot of the terrible misogynistic and personally regrettable comments that we heard the last time around from uh, a lot of sports fans. So I'm grateful for the change in tenor and tone, and I think we should keep it up. Thank you very much. I appreciate you joining me, and I appreciate your time and perspective today. Thanks. Now, the issue is not just where should Seattle welcome professional arena sports, but also what to do with its existing public asset, Key Arena. As Brian Surratt explained, you know, the mayor's made it really clear that uh, we believe that this market can only handle one facility, and uh, we believe that. If there could be only one sports and entertainment complex in Seattle, what would become of Key Arena if the Soto proposal is accepted? To stimulate creative thinking about alternative futures for Seattle Center's Key Arena, I reached out to a Seattle Growth Podcast guest from Season 1, artist-turned-developer Sam Farazano. I am here with Sam Farazano at Equinox Studios yet again. Uh, Sam, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, sir. Welcome to sunny West Georgetown. It's good to see you. So you were in episode five of season one, and you're back. Uh, tell me about the latest developments at Equinox Studios. Uh, just cruising along. We've got uh, five to four different buildings now, uh, working towards five. Just trying to keep it growing and keep bringing more people here to experience the art in the place that's made and enjoying life to the fullest now that you have new buildings do you have do you have enough people to fill them yes we still have uh, a huge waiting list of people to get in uh, i could fill three more buildings with who are on that list today uh literally seventy-five thousand square feet of people wow. uh, waiting to to find space so and, and so you've built a, a strong artist community here just south of downtown in georgetown area can you talk about uh, do you see a need or a benefit of art in the Seattle core? Yes. I think, uh, you know, Seattle being at the tipping point where uh, we need density to, to bring affordability back to the city. Uh, we need housing. We need we need all the things with all these new people coming, but with all the people that are here that can't afford to live here. Um, I think we need to have, uh, with the affordable housing, we need to be able to keep arts and artisans and culture and small business in the Seattle core, because if we don't, we're going to lose our soul. We're going to push all of that creativity out. Nobody's going to be able to afford to live here. And then we're just going to be a gated community for wealthy folks with no creativity. For the people who aren't involved in the arts, what do they gain or lose from having uh, the creative soul nearby? Well, I think it's the ability to understand how things are made and to see people making those with a passion, like to experience that is always the thing that I think 
is the biggest benefit. You see people come down here for our events and they see us, you know, uh, dropping 600 pounds on, on a flaming piece of steel to, to, uh, create an industrial Christmas ornament and they just light up like they're, they, they scream and yell, they, they laugh, they light up. And it's like this experience of actual creation that they really connect to. Um, I think arts really brings people back to a center, back to a point, like a, a soul, however you want to define those things. I think we all remember being in second grade and like realizing what art really meant to us at that point. You know, we draw and draw and draw, but then we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and some people go away from that and go into whatever world they go into in business and whatnot and turn all that off. And when they get to see people that are doing that in real life now, I think they identify with it. And now you've reimagined a set of warehouses here in Georgetown and, and converted them and turned them into a thriving artist community. Uh, how would you, if you had the opportunity, how would you reimagine Key Arena in Seattle Center? Well, um, when, when I first started thinking about this idea um the thing that struck me was one of the 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 coolest moments in my um like art and community experience which was actually a uh an open house at pratt uh art school up in uh, in the central district and they had a big open house and they had set up bleachers like sports bleachers around the area to do a bronze pour, which is, you know, molten bronze being poured into molds and creating sculpture. And the coolest thing that I saw there was that they packed sports bleachers filled with people there to watch art be made, to watch it happen right there live. And the crowd cheering and the enthusiasm was better than any sports event I've ever been to. And just watching this like molten bronze be poured and these guys in the crazy suits. It was just awe-inspiring that this whole sort of context of sports was there for arts. And that really made me start thinking about things in this in the key arena ideas. You've got this giant arena that could actually achieve that sort of enthusiasm for something other than beating the crap out of each other on a ice. Uh, field <laughs> with sticks. Sorry. Um, so you're a big sports fan. Well, so. no, I actually enjoy some sports. I mean, I, I played sports, I, you know, but I just think, you know, we have a lot of it. And uh, but, you know, when you look at the return of arts as an investment in the city, the the re, the the actual investment of the city's money that they put into arts comes back four to one in the arts through um, taxes and the admissions, all the different things that come back to the city from their investment, that's a hell of an, a return. And maybe it could increase the people who actually get to experience arts in that very active sense, as opposed to just going and sitting and being an audience member. It seats roughly 17,000 people. Uh, are you speculating that you would want to have all the seats available for the creation of art? Or No, I, I think, I mean, in in kind of thinking through from a business perspective of how do you actually pay the bills, um, looking at a model where you could kind of break the central part of the arena down into four different performance venues. If you look at um, using the existing structure, my my thought would be not to do significant changes to the structure, like leave it fairly well intact and don't invest, you know, trillions of dollars into 
into change, um, get it to a point where it works in its in its current envelope. Um, but you could change the central arena into kind of four different stages with a central core that you can have backstage areas for four different. So you, if you look at like 12th Avenue Arts, um, two theater companies, same building, two different theaters, um, serving four or five different companies and then a whole bunch of other folks. Um, we need more space for local arts to thrive. So creating those spaces, but making it in a way that you can also transform it into one big venue when uh, Eddie Vedder, I don't know, somebody somebody comes back to play in, in the bigger concert venue style. Um, and then take the rest of the arena and create kind of a um, an arts enclave in the spirit of like a Pike Place Market. You know, local people who are creating stuff on site, doing it there, um, and all in this, the same kind of vein of being able to experience the arts in the place that they're made. So come in there and you have metal workers and woodworkers and painters and photographers and ceramic artists, and, and the public can come and experience all of that in all these different types in one space. And so are you putting them in the suites or in the concourse or both? I, I you know, I haven't been to Key Arena in quite a while, but uh, looking at the uh, probably more around the concourse and in a lot of the service sort of side of things, um, the, the building is really well suited for access and loading and ventilation. It's all sort of got all this infrastructure where you need tons of people to be in one space. Um, so it's got a lot of, of hearty already sort of their spaces and if you can use the current structure and then demise it down to usable portions you could create you know a couple hundred spaces around the concourse level you could you know and and looking at the flexibility of space for performance from you know four smaller pieces to one big space you know being able to do that in some of the other areas as well um, could be a, an effective way to go about it and so what would that cost to subdivide into four spaces? I mean, what materials do you need? And do you have any sense from your experience here developing these warehouses that would help you put a cost estimate to what that would be? Um, I know that the key arena probably needs a fair amount of upgrades seismically and code wise um, to get it to a sort of a stable point. But um, I would think you could probably get a lot done for $100 million and and really not again, not trying to reinvent it or rebuild it, but really using what's there. And so you, you put in $100 million. How on earth do you get that money back? Uh, do you have any sense from your experience here? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, if you look at the, the rough numbers, um, you look at 368,000 feet roughly of, of area right there now, um, you figure probably at least one hundred to 150,000 of that is transit area for people um, moving through the space and you'd need to retain a lot of that if you're going to have larger venue shows there um, but if you look at a lot of the other um, the other area that leaves 200 to 250,000 uh, square feet if you could get an efficient use of that say you could get 200,000 worth out of rentable space um, and look at somewhere in the neighborhood of even if you if you went at a very affordable rate of a dollar a square foot per month at 200,000 square feet you're looking at 2.4 million 
a year in revenue just from the rentable space and then looking at uh, what you could what you could leverage the performance space into on a uh, you know event by event basis to bring in bigger events to subsidize that but if you looked at call it call it two and a half million by the time you get all that worked out um, per year and if you're looking at a lease rate somewhere around a million bucks hopefully that could be lower working with the city because we're doing public benefit um, and then look at uh, the balance of that being able to um, to service debt on the uh, on the investment the original investment so with the performing arts, do you have any sense, given that you have performing artists here in a very smaller space uh, in the Equinox Studios here in Georgetown, do you have any sense, like, would you have, like, a, a performing company or would you have, I guess what I'm saying is, how, who would come to those four spaces and right. how would you get, how would somebody get them, how much would that cost or how much would they pay, any sense of that? Um, I think that you know, there, there is quite a bit of need in Seattle because spaces kind of keep coming to an end uh, because of development and because of changes in the city. Um, I think that if you break it down to an accessible size, I mean, our spaces here are 99 seat capacity, right? So we're not, we're talking a different scale because even if you break it down into four, um, you're looking at probably in the 2,000 uh, seats per per venue um but i think if you if you make that affordable to the to companies to be in there in those four spaces because of the rotation in like theater and dance and um the performing arts you could actually have six or eight or ten different companies that could be in residence there um being you know rehearsing not in those spaces and performing in them um, you could set it up and I think you could actually generate at least the, the dollar square foot or, or more, um, in those, in those sort of smaller sense of venues. So in your reimagining idea, how critical is it to have maintain that it's a, a large scale mainstream artist venue, or do you think it could thrive if it was just the four quadrants and the circulating artists space? Um, I think think that the most successful would probably be a balance between the two you know you use use some of the sort of national leverage um, financially to help offset some of the local um, venues that you could provide more access to people who aren't bringing in as much revenue um, maybe it's a revenue-based uh, rent structure um, where you can actually look at the people that are locally providing public benefit that are doing stuff for kids that are doing stuff for youth or at-risk populations, um, really making this an opportunity to expand the, the arts to a greater audience and really make it accessible, um, I think would be a huge benefit. With uh, Cultural Access Washington, the, the, the new um, stuff that's trying to get passed on the, on the ballot coming this fall, um, there's the, the, the sole focus is like getting more people to experience arts. This could be a, a, a perfect example of a possibility. And as just a visioning exercise, I think you could provide a lot of access, get a reasonable revenue and make it pay for itself in the end. And what is the benefit of this approach of putting the artists in the concourse or in the suite levels and having people be able to see them make their creations? What is the benefit of this approach for Seattle Center as a whole? 
Well, I think Seattle Center is, is very good at you come and you see a product, you see an end result. Um, but to really come into the place where stuff is made um, is the benefit. There's, there's that experience of really seeing the artist doing the art, whether that's theater or metalwork or ceramics, like actually touching, you know, feeling the heat from the forge or the, the kiln and seeing the fire shooting out the top. Um, like that experience is, is really life affirming. And to do that in a large sense, you know, Equinox, we have a uh, hundred thousand square feet basically. So we're talking three to four times the amount of space and the amount of collaboration and cross pollination just amongst the, the tenants here and the co-inspiration like that experience of being in that for the people that are here is incredible. But then even more than that is when the public gets to come and experience all of that and it's full regalia, like just watching the people light up is, is what really does it for me. And I think what enhances their lives when they come here because they keep coming back. Now let's get into the numbers a little bit more. So you say a dollar a square foot. How does that compare to Equinox and how does that compare to maybe other, your competitors? So that would be the low end. So a really conservative number. So my rents here go from about a dollar a square foot up to about a dollar 80 a square foot is where I top out. Um, as far as com competition in, in Seattle, um, you get into things like the urban work lofts and active space, those types of things. They're getting up upwards towards $4 a square foot. Um, you know, this, if it was set up right, could be a huge benefit for the people that are there. So maybe there's there's more revenue. You know, maybe you, you bump that up to $1.50 or $2, um, which, again, would only help with the return on the investment. Um, I think the exposure there could be pretty incredible for working artists. Um, I think the exposure for theater and dance could be incredible. Um, so it, I think it would, you know, in, in working, if we actually worked through a model like this, looking at what all of those benefits would be to the tenant coming in, you could probably, um, you could probably bump those numbers up. But I was just trying to be really conservative in a, in a spitball there. So if you really wanted to be affordable and at the low end, then you're pulling in roughly 2.5 million per year. And if you wanted to be more high end, and that obviously has some drawbacks, but you could then pull in maybe five or 10 million on the- Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, for me, I wouldn't want it to be like a boutique space in the sense that only wealthy people could afford to have space there. I would want it to be grassroots, like working artists, people that want to be there and want to interact with the public and want to interact with each other and take advantage of how that whole sort of ecosystem could work there. Um, I think if you get up into the, you know, to the point of where you'd be over $2 a square foot, you're going to, you're going to change that whole uh, paradigm. I know you haven't crunched the numbers on the hundred million, but just kind of help me understand where that would come from, why this would cost a hundred million to just put some walls and <laughs> <laughs> well i think i mean again not knowing the, the all the details of where key arena sits today as far as seismically and code wise um i think you you'd have to put a, a fairly good allowance aside for just getting it back to stable um and seismically fit um so but as far as you know building walls and infrastructure inside it's not that much um the running you know hopefully the 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 power and 
uh, plumbing systems are all fairly well distributed uh, because of the current use. Um, so I, you know, again, trying to be conservative saying, okay, if we had a hundred million, we could get in there and do this. Um, you know, maybe it's 50 million, maybe it's being able to, maybe it is in good shape now and doesn't need, um, a lot of things. When I was looking at, uh, developing the Pratt site on, um, in the central district, they had a whole city block. We were looking at, um, I'm trying to remember the square footage. Um, somewhere in the 200,000 square foot range with residential and uh, workspace and whatnot. Um, and we were in the $50 million range from ground up, you know, parking garage to the roof. Um, so throwing numbers at, at a, a giant building, um, you know, on the back of the napkin. Uh, it, so, it's so the bulk of the cost is going to be getting a 300 that, uh, roughly 300,000 square foot facility up to code with the earthquakes and it, uh, not earthquakes, but the seismic. Yeah. And- yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it seems like if this from my perspective, if the city is talking about tearing it down, then it needs a, a fair amount of money just to get it to stable. Right. Um, and then if you're looking at it, you could I mean, sky's the limit. You could spend, you know, a billion in there trying to get all fancy you're an artist but you've now uh, had to put on a finance hat to developing all these buildings here spending a hundred million and getting roughly a million and a half a year how how does that compare to <laughs> would would you ever get that hundred million in a hundred years you get to pay that off right <laughs> no um it, it's a good question um i think Finding again, finding those ways where you can up that income from the the base level without changing the paradigm into just a boutique space um, is what would be important. So if you can push it up to five million and you're knocking, um, you know, three or four million dollars off your debt each year and you're at call it 75 million since we're talking about the average there, um, you know, if you could knock that off pretty quickly and look at um Doing, you know, I mean, this is a long-term deal, right? This is like getting the the fifty or hundred-year lease with the city and making this a an asset to the city long-term. Um, and granted, you're going to have to put in money for maintenance and you know to carry the building forward. But um, you know, I think if you could get some, you know, looking at partnering with the city, um, being able to set up a PDA where you could do bonding capacity, you could do um, loan and grant capacity. Um, you know, you could look at some of the bigger sort of national granting, uh, organizations. You could probably raise, raise a fair chunk out of that. Um, if you're creating this like superstructure of arts and culture, um, at a local level. So do I think a million dollars a year for a hundred years is realistic? No. (laughs) Um, but but you were I, very conservative. In fairness, you I, said, I was, oh, you went I was conservative on the yes. I was, all ends. I was trying. So, <laughs> um, so let's say somebody loved this idea. <laughs> Don't give them my business card. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my question. Would you ever? What, is this something that you could ever foresee taking on if that if somebody loved your vision or? Uh, yeah, I mean, it. I. I think it's a it's a long shot, but um, I think you know. For me, Seattle really starting to pay attention to 
finding the way to create, preserve, and foster arts and cultural space in the core, in the city, and not push it out. Like, if we don't do that, we're all in trouble. I think if we work together, if we find the ways to do it efficiently, we can create something gargantuan like this. We could, we can make it an example for all kinds of other places to, to follow. Um, but it would take a huge coalition of people and money and will on the city's behalf to make it happen. You know, are all the Supersonics fans going to stand out there with, you know, and protest and the artists have to break through the, the lines? Like, I don't know. But, you know, making it that, that public benefit asset in a different way than sports. Um, I think there's a lot of motivation. It'd be, it'd be basically consolidating a lot of efforts that are out there in small parts, parts like here um, and bringing them together into one place. Um, that as a concept is really exciting to me in bringing a city together to really focus on arts and culture and really make something happen that, that is huge for the city and the, the region at that point. Um, you know, Pike Place Market was a huge effort to save for local business, local growers, the farmer, like meet the farmer is the whole idea there, right? Imagine Key Arena as meet the artists, the local artists, and come there and experience it in the place that it's made. It could be huge. Any concluding thoughts? Let's do it. <laughs> you turned from don't give them my business card to let's do it so quick. What what changed? Just talking about it? Or? I No, I, I think that don't give them my business card was maybe a little harsh, a little conservative. I've got a lot of work to do today and, you know, maybe I need a couple of weeks to really ramp up to, to, uh, to changing the world. But, um, you know, I, my thing is always, I will do whatever I can within my power and within my influence and inspirational spectrum to get people to work together to create more space for arts and artisans. Like we got to do it. Um, and if this is an opportunity, great. Let's try it. Let's figure out if it could work. All right, Sam, thank you very much for your time and perspective. Really appreciate seeing you get again. And uh, best of luck with all you're doing here at Equinox. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great day. That is all for today's special episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share on the issue? Reach out to all Seattle City Council members via one email, council at seattle.gov. I'd also love to hear from you on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. And I'm gearing up to bring you a season three of Seattle Growth Podcast. In the meantime, please subscribe to Seattle Growth Podcast in iTunes so you don't miss a single episode. I will continue bringing you diverse perspectives on how the transformation underway in Seattle affects you and life in the city. Until next time, I am Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on the journey of Seattle Growth Podcast.